Now let's take this time together to turn our attention to God's Word. I'm going to ask you to join me again this morning in Acts chapter 16. I'm going to read a few verses beginning from verse 9. I'm actually going to read down through verse 15, and then I'm going to jump ahead and read verse 29 to 32. So listen as I read God's Word. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained there for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out to the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay with me. And she prevailed upon us. Now down to verse 29. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he said, then he brought them out and, and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Let's pray. Lord, as we take this time in this service to open up your word, and in particular really today, God, to seek to unpack pertinent and important themes that come out of this section of Scripture, that we would have a sound and thoroughly Scripture-informed understanding. God, I pray that you would grant us much grace as we seek to cover much ground in this morning. Lord, our desire to do so is so that our, with our eyes and with our hearts, we might see more clearly the truth of your word. God, grant that I would speak it faithfully and clearly. Lord, grant even in this hour for all who you've brought here this morning uh, a, a, a remarkable attentiveness and an overcoming grace. Lord, that they would uh, be enabled to attend to the things that we consider this morning. Lord, thank you for hearing our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as I take up this uh, section of Scripture, uh, we want, we want to get it in its context, and I want to try to lay this down briefly so that we move head, ahead from this point. We know that by the time we're in chapter 16, we are into what is called the second missionary journey. This is now Paul traveling with Silas. Timothy is also now accompanying them as they go. Uh, as they were going various places in ministry, they were forbidden and thus hindered from going into certain places. And struggling to know, where are we going to go with this gospel? Where are we going to serve? 
And in the providence of God, God caused a vision to be given to Paul, the apostle, of a man in Macedonia, saying, come over here and help us. And we noted before, his immediate conclusion was that God has called us to go and preach the gospel in Macedonia. And we never want to miss that. As much as we want to be of practical good to the temporal needs of people around us, all of that is of limited value. There's even a sense in which when they're arguing with Jesus, his disciples, about some uh, money that was wasted, Jesus says, listen, the poor you always have with you, me you do not always have with you. There is to be, for the people of God, always a priority on the spiritual things, before the bodily things. And the simple conclusion was, they need help, they need the gospel. And that is the reality around us. We also saw his approach to doing that consistently, even as we moved to here, was a simple and plain preaching of the gospel. Through declaring Christ and Him crucified. Not through the wisdom of words and the skillful way of men. People would even say regarding Paul himself that his own personal appearance and his way of speaking was not that impressive. Was relatively weak even though his letters came across far stronger and more weighty. But what, what we began to do as we moved on deeper into this is we saw... When you go to a particular place and preach the gospel, this passage also reveals to us how that gospel, by the grace of God, is attended with transforming and saving grace. We began to notice this. Here she was, a worshiper of God, as was every Jew and every proselyte from the Old Testament but there is no salvation apart from Christ. So all of those who were Jews or Judaizers or, or practicing that, they could not refuse or reject Jesus as the Messiah. And so they were coming, the apostles are coming, with a mystery that was hidden for ages and generations and has now been made known to the saints through the apostles. And so they had to receive that gospel. And the scripture here again make, reveals to us, in a sense, what is the difference between Lydia and a multitude of other Jews? There were a, a group of Jews around Stephen as he proclaimed with historical thoroughness and biblical eloquence the gospel of Jesus Christ which led the Jews around him to stone him in rejecting Christ and rejecting the man who dared declare that message. We know that Paul also has already faced these kinds of stonings for the sake of the gospel, run out of various synagogues and places therein. But here as they speak to Lydia and these women of her household that are out by the riverside, something profound and distinct takes place. And that is the power and grace of God. It says here unequivocally, the Lord opened her heart. 
that's very important. I want us to get that because in the process of time, we develop modes of thinking and ways of expressing things that no longer are what the scriptures say. We might come to someone and say this, open your heart to Jesus. Open the door. And, and we are putting the onus on them to do the opening. The scriptures so beautifully here reveal to us God does the opening. Which is why when we are uh, preparing for or the proclaiming of the gospel, preparing for evangelism, we plead with God. God, give me opportunity to share. And as I do, oh God, open their heart that they might hear it, that they might believe it. Open their heart. And we know the scriptures, and we spoke a little bit earlier this morning about this. We say these words so frequently, and we need to grasp the full import of them. God saves. Right? The Father sent the Son to be the Savior. We've got to understand that. Who saves? God saves. Christ saves. Have any of us saved ourselves? Has anyone who has ever been saved, saved themselves? And the answer is, of course, no. We, we've talked about before, as it says in the early part of Ephesians chapter 5, we were dead, and while we were dead, don't ever mistake that, while we were dead, not stirring, not, not, not in a coma, but possibly still hearing something as people... No, this is absolute deadness. While dead, he made us alive in Christ. The language of Scripture even speaks of it with the profoundness of creation. Before God said, let there be light, do you know what there wasn't? And when he said, let there be light, do you know what there was? Light. And in the same way as God said, let there be light, He has shown the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ into our hearts. It's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So richly. And the same kinds of passages are spoken throughout where the scriptures speak of, of deafness and blindness. And there is a multitude of metaphors that we might figure it out. We were apt absolutely without hope. I mean, I love the way the scriptures say some of these things, and I don't want us to ever forget it. 1 Peter 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again. What? How did it happen that any were born again? It is according to His great mercy, and He is the cause of all of it. Uh, uh, wanting to, again, see this in, in Ezekiel 36, we know these words. He says this in Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. 
I will remove the heart of stone, that heart that is unresponsive, that, that, that heart that is unmoving. And he says, and I will put in there a, a heart of flesh. I will put in there a responsive heart, a moving heart. I will put a new spirit within you. And then it goes on to say, and I will cause you to walk in my commandments. In 1 Corinthians 2, we're reminded of these simple words. In verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 2, it says, the natural person, which is everybody who's ever been born. The natural person, listen what it says clearly, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So what does the natural person not do? They don't accept it. So if somehow you and I did accept it, what happened? Now, none of us like to say, well, I'm an unnatural person. Because that, no, what happened is because, let me finish reading that verse, of course, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So God must send his spirit to us, and that spirit brings us that great conviction of sin and then grants us understanding of the gospel. I mean, we've got to get this. We know, and what's amazing is we memorize so many verses. I often think of, having grown up in the Awana Club's program, how many verses uh, uh, God was pleased to expose me to and enable me to memorize, and then wonder how I went so many years without actually listening to the words coming out of my own mouth. It says in 1 John chapter 4, 19... We love him, in the King James, we love, why? Because he first loved us. Those that God has set his unique saving love in Christ Jesus upon, when he loves them with that unique and profound saving love, do you know what it produces? It produces love. As it says in Romans 5, 5, He has poured His love into our hearts by His Spirit. And so we've, we understand this. Salvation belongs to our God and unto the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, that is a song right there written in the book of Revelation, isn't it? And we don't have to wait until we're around the throne in heaven to join that chorus. Now, realistically, many of our brothers and sisters may not join that particular chorus until they get there because a lot of confusion uh, seeps in. And I'm hoping that we can make some of that a little bit clearer today. Just a few more verses to stir our hearts up. In Isaiah 42, prophesying of what would be accomplished in Christ, it says this, and listen to the peculiarity of the words and the power behind them. Isaiah 42, 16. I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. So let me give you a hint. They didn't know it. 
sometimes, I would say with great frequency, good theology doesn't come from extensive intelligence. It just comes from a thorough and humble reading of God's Word. I will lead the blind in a way they do not know, in a path they have not known, I will guide them. All right? They don't know it, they didn't figure it out, but God is leading them there. I will, listen, turn the darkness to light before them. So how is it they now go that way? Because God, by His power, leads them. He puts that light before them, and the rough places into a level ground. These things I do, and I do not forsake them. In Isaiah 29, 18, it says these profound words that again sound shocking. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. Uh, how's that going to happen? They're deaf. Correct? In that day, the deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. And you read that verse, and you're saying, well, hold on a second. Were they deaf or were they blind? I mean, could they not hear or could they not see? And of course, we say, yes. And who solved that? God. And how did he do that? In the miraculous work through the hearing of the gospel. And so we note that. And, and, and then we began to note last week. So, so we see what God does in salvation. And this is what often historically is called monergism. God makes a new creation. God takes the dead and makes them alive. God makes the blind see. God makes the deaf hear. God causes us to be born again. This is what God does. Now, interestingly enough, and again this week, I was listening to some individuals who uh, misunderstand theology. And I want us to, to, to get this clear, because uh, I don't want to, when I say theology, we're not talking about high doctrine. We're talking about what the Bible teaches. Don't let theology seem a, a fancy word to us. What the Bible teaches. Now listen, there are some who so cling to certain ideas in theology that might be true that they deny other things the Scripture says. And this also is dangerous. Uh, uh, one of the things that I was hearing this week is an individual who uh, was saying this, that there are those who hold... Uh, certain views of the sovereignty of God in salvation that may have various titles uh, attached to it historically, reformed or whatever it may be. And uh, they said, these are people who believe that God is going to save his elect no matter what they do, whether they want to be saved or not. No! No! Now, I understand why that person is pointing at that kind of theology and saying, this is what they say, and it's wrong. Well, see, the problem, the thing that's wrong is, what he is saying is not what they say. You know, it's easy to make them seem wrong. The fact is this, God is going to save his elect 
And they, by His saving grace, will do something. Listen, did God create the sun? And does the sun shine? Yes. Well, is the sun itself shining? Or is, or is God doing it? Well... Yeah, when God caused a blind person to see, when Jesus did a miracle and took a blind person, now their eyes are opened. Do they see or does just Jesus see through them? Well, they're actually seeing only by the ability, the power that Christ has worked in them, but they are doing something. Now, I want us to note this. We do not contribute to our salvation. Christ is the one whose perfect righteousness has contributed all the merits, all of the righteousness, all that is required for our salvation. It is reckoned to us. But listen... When God does His saving work and converting work, there are parts of it in which we are passive in being dead to life, being born again, in being a new creation. Parts that are holy Him working a miracle on what was previously inert and unresponsive. But listen... When God does His work within us, we do something. I pointed this out last week, and I think it's very important to, again, uh, mention it to us. We've got to make sure that when we handle the Word, we don't have a view of theology that we hold so highly that we cannot answer questions people ask in the way the Bible asks them. The Philippian jailer, as in the second portion that I read there in uh, in. Acts 16, the chapter we're in, he said these words in verse 30. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And I know there's a lot today whose temptation is to answer that question. There's nothing you can do. You're dead in your trespasses and sin. You're darkened in your understanding. There's nothing you can do. God must save you or you will not be saved. And that is theologically true. But I ask you, when that question was asked to the apostle, how was that question answered? It wasn't answered, there's nothing you can do. It was answered, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. He is calling for a response from them. Now, until they have a new heart, can they respond? No. Until they're made alive, can they respond? No. Until they are given eyes to see spiritually the glory of God and the proclamation of the gospel and the person of Christ, do they desire it? No. But listen, once they are, this work of grace is wrought in them upon the hearing they have 
a real response. And to miss that is to miss what the scriptures say. Because listen, the same question I ask you, what does it say, what did they say on the day of Pentecost? The the simple words uh, on that day were this, Acts chapter 2, verse 37 and following. Sirs, or verse, yeah, 2 verse 37, Peter has preached the gospel, they were cut to the heart and says, brothers, what shall we do? And what was the answer? Repent and be baptized. The gospel is attended with gospel commands. Believe, repent, be baptized. And listen, that is a real response for which all are responsible. Now, if, they, if men do not respond, which none naturally do, because as Romans 1 tells us, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There is a hardness that has come upon the hearts of all men because of our sin, which is spoken of as the deadness and the blindness. But listen, I, I want us to, to remember this. It calls for a real response. And in this passage, it says, the Lord opened her heart. That is something that happened to her passively. God was active, opening, passively. She received the opening. And then it says, and she paid attention. That phrase is her being active. Now, I also noted last week that uh, that that phrase there that says she paid attention doesn't carry the weight of it. It is she clung to it. She adhered to it. It, it, It's it's a phrase that's used uh, in another passage of someone who, who is addicted to much wine. She uh, uh, became absolutely committed to addicted to, clinging to, enamored by all that he was saying. She did that. Listen, no one is saved if they are not brought by grace to a real response. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Romans 10 says, that is, under the conviction of sin, under the ex- in the expression of faith, in the fullness of the gospel that they've heard, they call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. But listen, what if they don't call? What if they don't believe? What if they don't repent? And here's the answer. They are not saved. Well, someone says, but what if they're elect and they don't? I mean, that is is like saying, you know, what if you have sight but can't see? You know, what if your hearing functions well but you can't hear? You're saying ridiculous things. Yes, I'm intentionally saying ridiculous things because when God does a work, it is absolutely powerful and it brings about 
a real response. Okay? So, so I don't want us to, to uh, uh, miss these kinds of things as the Scripture unpacks them. But I noted this as well. There is not only a real response initially, but when God saves someone, He saves them out of something, and He saves them unto something else. And, and, and that idea has also been confused and turned around in ages. You know, it has, it has become common, and there was a, a, a dear old man that I knew many, many years ago um, that uh, he would, wherever he would go, he would meet people, he would shake their hand. And being a dear old man, anytime he extended his hand, during obviously a different season, if some, you extend your hand to someone today, they may run from you or shout at you. But nonetheless, in a different era when all was normal, he would extend his hand. And, but once they gripped his hand, that was it. You were not letting go pretty much until you prayed a prayer to receive Christ. Because he would grip their hand and he would say, you know, have you received your ticket? And they would say, what ticket? And he would go on and say, your ticket to heaven. And, and then he'd give a, a brief gospel presentation and, say, and ask them, what are you thinking, heaven or hell? Which is preferable? You know, I'm paraphrasing. And they would uh, frequently choose heaven. Also, they're getting the sense, this man will not let me go. And so many times they would go ahead and pray a prayer and he would let them go. But note this, he would take their name and write it in a book and he would pray for them the rest of the days of his life. You know, and, I, and I appreciate the fact that he prayed for them because I think most of those who went away certainly weren't saved, certainly needed to hear more of what the scripture said, but he was praying to God, God, wherever they are, take the things that they've heard and send someone else to them, move them to, to attend a church that they might come uh, uh, and be saved. But listen, it's not just a ticket to heaven. I've got my ticket. I'm saved. I'm going. You know, let me show you. I got my baptism certificate. Let me show you. I signed my name in the back of a Bible I got from a hotel. All right. That really is not it. Well, what I want us to see about this is, uh, and, and, and not to confuse it, God saves. Salvation is the work of God. In that work, God brings about a real response. And where God has begun to work, God's people begin to work. Okay. Are we saved by works? No. But we are saved unto good works. Because the same faith that saves us is the same faith that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly righteously. Even as it says in Ephesians 2.10, as much as I love the fact that we've all memorized and we all quote Ephesians 2.8 and 9, why do we stop before verse 10, where it says, for we are His workmanship? Let me, let me modernize that for us. He made us what we now are in Christ. We are His workmanship in Christ. We were in and of the world, and now, by His divine power and work, 
we are in Christ. Now listen, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we say, well, God determined He set His love on us before the foundation of the world. He elected His people before the foundation of the world. Well, He has planned our salvation and purposed it in His eternal wisdom before the foundation of the world. Yes! But not only that, He has planned and purposed not only the the day, the way, the means that we would be brought to salvation, but also the powerful, transforming effect of that work of God in our lives from then onward. Again, created in Christ Jesus, the ESV says, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I just want us to begin to uh, uh, see a, a, a few things that we don't want to misunderstand. So, some will say this, is it important that I consider Jesus to be not, not only accept him as my savior, but I also accept him as my Lord? Listen, uh, part of that, it, it presents a misunderstanding. When Jesus was, was, rose from the dead by the power of God, he was declared to be the Son of God with power. He is risen and he is Lord. He is Lord over all. The, the thought that someone can think that they can pick and choose doesn't make it real. For example, even in the world in which we live today, somebody roaming around somewhere might say, well, that man's not my president. They might say that. Uh, which they're choosing not to acknowledge him as that, but is he the president? And so whether you acknowledge it or not, that's who he is, and the failure to acknowledge that means you got something way missing. You know, you may not appreciate certain actions and approve of certain things, that's a different thing altogether, but who he is, Jesus is Lord and Savior. When someone says, well, no, you can accept Him as your Savior, and then if you choose, you can accept Him as your Lord. Listen to what the Scripture says in Luke 2.11. This is as as Jesus is being promised into the womb. This isn't some later edition. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is... Christ the Lord. So listen, if somebody says, I accept him as Savior, but not as Lord, do they know him? I mean, it's like, it's like you're saying you don't accept him for who he actually is. Listen as I read a few other verses. Philippians 3, verse 20 says this, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, there's there's a lot that goes on there. You realize that the names that the Scripture give have meaning. 
Jesus. You will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means the God who saves. And what about Jesus the Christ? I add the word the because actually it's often there in the Greek. And because, surprise, it's not Jesus' last name. It, it, is a, it is a further description. He is the God who saves. He is the promised, unique, anointed one, which spoke of his priestly role, his kingly office, his prophetic service, just powerful in, turn, in, that, in that phrasing, the anointed one. And he is also the kurios, the Lord which you simplified it, carry it to the Old Testament, it was a common reference to God. Kurios was the common way the Greeks would translate a word, the, the word for Yahweh into Greek. But further, into modern, ordinary language, you could simply say it means this, master. Now again, we don't live in a society where Probably in the last week, you haven't referred to anybody you've come into contact with as master. You know, th those, those seasons have washed away from us, uh, you know, and thankfully, men make poor masters. But oh, what a master is our Savior. And that's what he absolutely is. I want to uh, just, just note this, okay? These are the words of Jesus. Now, this, I want to make this as simple as possible. What is the likelihood he is correct? Completely. In Luke 6, verse 46, he says these simple words. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? It's not just supposed to be part of my title. It is supposed to be part of the reality of our relationship, part of the reality of how you respond to me. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and what does he finish it? And not do what I tell you. Now, if, if they don't do what he tells them, then is it right for them to call him Lord? If it's not right for them to call him Lord, is it right for them to call him Savior? I mean, he still is the Lord, and he still is the Savior. There's no other salvation. There's no, there's no other name given among men. He still is these things, but not to them. Because Jesus goes on and says this, and, and uh, listen, uh, I know a lot of people don't like, uh, this, this starts to step on uncomfortable lines, but listen. If the scripture makes us uncomfortable, then it's good to be uncomfortable. Listen, we are saved by grace through faith. Don't miss that. But listen to what it says in Luke 6. Jesus says this, everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them is what? Like the man who builds his house, 
dug deep the foundation, built on the rock. When the flood arose, the stream broke against it. That house could not shake because it had been well built. Verse 49. But the one who hears and does not do them. Now listen, I I, want to make this clear. Jesus here is not saying the one who hears and believes. He says the one who hears and does. Now I'm not actually saying two different things. It sounds like I am. But listen, the one who hears and believes is the one who hears and does. The doing is the outworking of our believing. But those who believe do. And Jesus makes it clear. And the ones who don't, it says, is like the man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And the streams broke against it. Immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Now listen. From Luke 6. We go over to Matthew 7, where we have a a parallel type passage where where it's a little bit more expansive. Jesus here, instead of simply saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? He says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Means you can get the language right. You can get the terminology right. You can be a part of a particular community or culture, and you can say all the things right and still not be saved. What's interesting, I want us to note in this, it says, um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but these are, again, the words of Christ, so you be careful not to jump on me. Jesus says, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. What? Jesus is saying, who enters the kingdom of heaven? The one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Wait a second. Why is Jesus saying that? Does he not know that salvation is by faith? Well, of course he does. But he knows not only what faith is, initiates, but what faith produces in the people of God. And so he goes on and says, of course, you can see some people are very active in in religious activities. They're casting out demons in his name, prophesying his name, working miracles in his name. And he says to them in verse 23, I declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. How does he define them? Workers of lawlessness. Now, he's not referring to the things that they were boasting in, but why they were doing it and what was behind it, which is why in verse 26 of Matthew 7, he says, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, not do them. Verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. The scriptures are, the scriptures are quite clear. We believe Those who have believed actually do. Well, I'm getting confused. How does it work? It's all right if you get confused, but let's, I just want to draw our attention to a couple verses here. And then as I um, put these together, hopefully it'll become just a tiny bit clearer for us. Uh, Look what is, 
Look what God's word says as we look in. Uh, uh, you know, I want to note for you one more thing before I move on to the next point. The scripture says uh, in John chapter 20, when uh, Jesus appeared to the disciples and Thomas was there. Remember, Thomas wasn't believing. I won't believe until I see. What's, the, what's his first response when he now sees the risen Lord? My Lord and my God. Now, I want you to go with me briefly to 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. Because there's going to be a few pieces that put together here that are very important, even if they, they get muddled in our minds. With regard to uh, who Paul is now, remember, Paul was an absolute enemy of the cross until God saved him on the road to Damascus. God does not save us against our will. He changes our will. He, he redirects our desires. But listen to what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Is that not the, the, the claim of everyone? Everyone who's truly saved says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's not, I don't get the glory, I don't get the credit, by the grace of God I am what I am. And he says this, and his grace was not in vain towards me. Listen, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Wait a second, what did he, did he just boast? He said, by the grace of God I am what I am, and it for a moment sounded like, all right, Grace got me started, but after that, I worked harder than anyone else. That's what it sounds like till you keep reading, right? And what happens when we keep reading? I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. So listen. The grace of God brings salvation. And the grace of God brings transformation. Where we are being remade. Uh, we're all aware of um, Romans chapter 8 verse 29. We have been predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Look, we're not only saved for some kind of eternal fellowship that God might not have to spend eternity languishing in loneliness, as some people foolishly think. But He has saved us, and He is remaking us, transforming us by degree to degree into the image of His Son, by the putting off of the flesh. That's why it goes on to say... Um, the scriptures will say things such as this, Galatians chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? And our answer is, by the hearing with faith. All right, so works did not get me in relationship with Christ. It was the hearing with faith that was granted by the grace of God. And so... Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that you are being perfected by the flesh? Listen, Galatians 3, 6, and 7. 
Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Amen. But is faith a dormant thing? Or is faith an active doing thing? Listen, going on down, still in Galatians, now all the way to chapter 5. It says this in verse 24. And those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Verse 16 of Galatians 5 had said this. If I, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the works or desires of the flesh. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 1.18. I'm going to start zipping even faster for just a brief moment as we bring this to an end. 1 Peter 1.18 says this. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Now, it's important to note that. He, he, is, he is not only, in, in, Christ is not only in, in paying the penalty for our sin, granted us forgiveness and acceptance with God. He has not only set us free from what we oft call the penalty or punishment of sin, that's been done away with because he bore the wrath of God, he bore our punishment in his own body. But the scriptures say here, not only do we, is, is, did he die to set us free from future punishment, he died to transform present living. Okay? It says, you were ransomed from the futile ways. Curiously, the King James there says vain conversations, which is not just talking. Conversations used to be about way of living. It used, was an ancient word to speak of your conduct. For, for this simple word, uh, uh, words here, vain conversation, uh, uh, the word mateos here simply says this. It is something that is absolutely empty, foolish idle, and unprofitable. And in terms of way, the word way there is, is conduct, the focus of our daily behavior. So he is, look, he's died not only to bring us ultimate forgiveness, not only has he granted us that we would have faith in Christ, but he's granted us by grace that we would be faithful in Christ Jesus. Not only unto faith, but also unto faithfulness. That's why Romans 4, 12 says that Abraham has been made the father not only of the circumcised, um, but also of those who walk in the footsteps of the faith. The faith is something that we walk in. It is something that we live in. It is something that we absolutely carry out. Um, uh, the scriptures open this up. In one, one more passage I want to draw your attention to is in John chapter 3, verse 36. It says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Amen. 
I mean, so simple and so clear. But the second half of the verse, sometimes we don't read and see how the scriptures speak of as what's the opposite of believing. It says, whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is, is, uh, has life. John 3, 36. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Wait a second. Was a mistake made here? In one, the first part of the verse says, whoever believes. And then the second part says, whoever does not obey. What is the clear confidence of God's word? Those who believe, obey. Those who disbelieve, disobey. Why were the children in the wilderness unable to enter into the promised land? Because disbelief expressed itself in disobedience. Which is why even curiously, the scriptures will go on to say, and, and our time is short, work on processing this. In Matthew 25, it says that Jesus will come and he will separate the living and the dead. And he will put his sheep on his right side and he will put his goats on, on the left side. And what does it say in that passage? Of course, it's not thorough. It's not absolutely comprehensive. But what does he say to those on the right side? When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. And they say, when did we do these things? And he says, inasmuch as you've done these to the least of these, you have done them to me. Enter into the kingdom that the Father has prepared for you. Now, what I wanted just to notice this. Is he bypassing faith? I mean, in our estimation sometimes, and would not be wrong theologically, we might see him as saying, because you believe, enter into the kingdom by faith. But Jesus, even in the judging his sheep, has this firm confidence. Where there is faith, there is a change in what follows. This is why James says, and there's this big debate, James says, faith without works is dead, and, and you're not saved by faith alone, but by faith and works when you read that in its whole context, he says, and this is the key to understanding that passage, works don't contribute to our justification. They don't. But he says, I will show you my faith by my works. Because the faith that is a saving faith that God gives is a gloriously profound, transforming, working faith. Okay, so as simple as this. Those who, are, those who on one side say this, look, um, God saves by his power and his sovereign grace. Uh, no response of man is required. God saves whether they want it or not. This is not what the Bible teaches. God saves and his saving power is so pervasive and so powerful that it brings about a real response and intimate relationship between those that he saved, those that he has brought to himself. Further, some will say, well, well uh, don't add works to salvation. I'm not so, we don't add works to salvation, but those that God has gloriously saved, he saved Unto a salvation that works in earnest. Okay? And all of these are varying aspects um, to the mysterious grace of God. Who by his 
power does certain things absolutely independently. And oftentimes also is pleased by his power to do things in and through secondary means and things. Like, can God cause it to rain with no clouds in the sky? Yes. But ordinarily, he causes it to rain through clouds that are in the sky. Right? And so, God can do things immediately himself, and he can do things through secondary means. God certainly, he, when he works his work of salvation, that initial transforming grace and making new, it is all of God independently upon which we are passive recipients. But now that he has given us life and union with Christ and the indwelling spirit, we are now by his grace active participants in the grace that is unfolding in our lives to his praise and glory. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, as we've worked out um, these things, just uh, pray that you'll help us to get these things clear in our minds. Your word is so clear in 1 John of what it looks like to love God. Loving God looks like obedience. Your word is so clear what it looks like to have faith in God. It looks like obedience. Lord, we're thank you that, thankful that your word also reminds us it's not an obedience that somehow we can produce. It is a divinely wrought work initiated by faith and the ongoing supply of grace is the necessary work of God that enables us to will uh, to work. We thank, thank thankful God is at work to will and to work in us for his good pleasure. Lord, I pray that you'll, uh, you helped me, I hope, to make things somewhat clear that we want to make sure that when questions are asked, we don't hold to necessarily specific answers we might find in a book here or there or even a, a good creed here or there, but we might be able to answer questions as the scripture does. Let us never fear, Lord, to open our Bibles and see what it says. Let us never fear the, the challenge for us to reconcile certain complexities. Let us humbly receive, and may you be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen.